Lord Jesus, we sang earlier on that our worship is all about you. And we thank you for this opportunity that it isn't just with our singing, but with our substance. It's with everything that we are that we want to worship you, and as our vision statement puts it, to grow more like you. So please take your word now and apply it to our minds and our hearts, and may we be determined to follow it uh, for the next week and for all the days of our lives. Amen. Uh, Can I just say, because I'm the vicar, um, uh, and therefore I'm in a good place to do it, thank you very much to the Cypher Band. Um, I'm astonished. uh, Will and I were talking earlier in the week. We really get the easy bit, because uh, when you're preaching, you just kind of, you know, it's... if it. If you make a mess of it, it's our fault, and that's the end of it. Uh, but you actually have to play with one another. And that, uh, any, anyone who's in a band just constantly astonishes me. So I'm just hugely grateful to you. Thank you for putting in the time this afternoon. Uh, and we're grateful as a congregation. Thank you. Now, I, I want to, uh, to try something, the kind of thing I would do in the morning service. And you're all going to go, we don't do that in the evening. But we'll see, we'll see what happens. Um, uh, I'm going to say a word, and I want you to shout out... You won't shout, of course, because you're far too well behaved. You'll mutter, but we'll, as close to shouting as you can get. I want you to shout out the word that uh, you most... That, that first comes into your head when I say my word. Um, so maybe we should um, practice. Um, let me think. Um, giraffe. Okay. That, stop, stop, stop. Okay. They're all starting to react to each other. No, wrong. First word, and all of you, not just the brave fifth, as that was. Um, Let's try another one. Um, Football. Interesting, okay. That that got more of a response. You're you're willing to Let me try something a little more abstract now. Justice. Okay, thank you. That was the one I wanted. Uh, let me just, I think I heard uh, various, but let me just tease them out. Um, let, say them again now. What, what did, was, was go on. Peace. Peace. Mercy. Peace. 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 Height. 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 Oh, fight. Okay, sorry. So I was confused. I've got a thing about height. Um, <laughs> um, any others? Righteous. Righteous. Punishment. Punishment. Magistrate. Magistrate. Okay. Magistrate. No, it doesn't work. Um, okay. Uh, now, we're going to practice um, some Hebrew. I want you to say after me, Tohu wavohu. Tohu wavohu. It's good, isn't it? Sounds great. Uh, wake, up, wake up tomorrow morning and, and this will be your day. Tohu wavohu. Great. What it means is uh, formless and void. It is the description of the world in Genesis chapter 1 as uh, God kind of walks onto the scene. And he looks out on the world and says that it is tohu wavohu, formless and void. Now, that's the world in Genesis. It's chaotic, it's disordered. Would you please turn, though, to Isaiah chapter 42? 
Three times between verses 1... Oh, I should have told you. Sorry, page 727. Three times between uh, verses 1 and 4 of chapter 42, we find that the servant of the Lord will bring justice. This is not the later chapters of Isaiah, which are very famous, where we see pretty clear predictions of Jesus and his work on the cross to deal with sin. It's all part of the same thing, of course. But here, what Isaiah the prophet is focusing on is that Isaiah, that uh, the servant will bring justice. And the word for justice uh, in Hebrew, mishpat, is something much richer than our word, which tends to convey magistrates, something legal. And it has within it a sense of things being set to rights. So yes, uh, righteousness would be part of it. Yes, it is legally between people, but it's also in nature. It's in human relationships. There's peace, there's mercy. It's the direct opposite of tohu wavohu. It means God finding chaos and then setting it to rights. It's what your mother used to do to your bedroom. (laughs) Setting things in order, how they should be, not how they've been found or have become. And it means, because it's an echoing of what God does and how God is, it kind of, it, it rolls so that justice that starts with him goes to his servant and then goes on to us and beyond. Now, what I want to do, first of all, is take in a little structure around this chapter. There are two servants in the chapter. There in verse 1, here is my servant. And there again in verse 19, who is blind but my servant. And actually, it's a bit disappointing, This those are two separate servants. They are different. Very quickly, I'm going to deal with the second one, and then we're not going to go back to it, because there's enough good stuff in the earlier part. Uh, This, the second one, Israel itself is called my servant. It is the people. And that's uh, surfaced in earlier chapters of Isaiah. This is about the people, and their lives are marked by chaos and disobedience, and judgment. They are uh, blind to their task and deaf to their Lord, Yahweh. So, uh, in verse 21, it pleased the Lord, Yahweh, for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. So again, we've got this idea of things standing in their right place, in human life and before God, and his law, a similar idea, uh, his instruction, his teaching, his giving of what things look like when they are set in the right order. Yahweh has given these, but his people have been deaf and blind, so that they wander, and any old conqueror passing by can pick them up and plunder them. They will be tempted in exile to think that disaster has come upon them, 
and that Yahweh might rescue them. But they are wrong. Disaster hasn't come upon them as any kind of accident. Rather, uh, Yahweh has handed them over. So, uh, verse 24, who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord Yahweh? Disaster hasn't accidentally come upon them. On the contrary, Yahweh has poured out his anger. Now, that sounds terrible. It sounds awful, doesn't it? And yet Isaiah knew differently. If the disaster doesn't come from Yahweh, then how can Yahweh have an answer to it? The circumstance is bigger than he is. But if Yahweh is the cause, then Yahweh has the answer. And one reason we're not going into any great depth here is because the answer comes at the very beginning of chapter 43. But now, this is what the Lord says, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. That's the one servant, the people, in 18 to 25. We know it's a different servant from the first servant because uh, uh, the servant in uh, uh, 18 to 25 is blind, while the first servant actually opens blind eyes, verse 7. So tonight we're going to focus on the first servant. We're actually going to focus even down on that, verses 1 through to 9. Most of verses 10 through to 17 are the way that God is to be praised for who he is. Well, it only takes a moment, doesn't it, to realize how much of the world is right back in tohu avohu. In nature, we've got floods and storms here in England. Well, in Australia, in New South Wales, they've got some of the worst bushfires they've ever had. And not just in nature, but in humankind. We have the news stories, like all that is going on in Homs in Syria. And yet we also know of our own personal circumstances. And I know as a pastor, the heartaches, the bereavement, the aching loneliness, the quarrels that tear families apart, the private sin that nobody knows about. The world needs justice as much as ever it did. And of course, therefore, it needs Jesus, who is the servant of chapter 42. He isn't here the one who later will deal with sin and that sense of atoning for our sin by his sacrifice. Here, he is the one who begins the task by taking the chaos of life and setting it in order. Later on, we'll find that it takes the cross to do that. But now we're learning what the cross is actually there to do. It's to take the chaos and set it in order. And it is again a contrast. Look at the way chapter 41 ends. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. And actually, chapter 42 also begins, see... Here is my servant. See over there, they are all false, but see over here, my servant whom I uphold. In the face of chaos and confusion, here is the servant whose task is bringing order and whose very character sets things to rights. The work of the servant will be what? 
to set things to rights, and where? On the widest scale. Because it starts where the servant is in Judah and Israel, but it extends even to the islands, verse 4. And when you were part of that world, the islands were as far away as you can get. Now, justice, law, righteousness, they're not the most attractive terms in our time. If you put up a Facebook post uh, before school or work tomorrow saying, uh, today I'm going to be just, righteous, and lawful, everyone would assume you just lost the plot or that you become a fairly unpleasant person. And yet that's what we are to be as these verses intended. So what I want to do is address that gap, really, tonight, between what it means for God to be just and what it might mean for us to be just and to pass that on. I want to spend time looking at the character of God and of his servant and of ourselves and of those we touch, all from this passage, and I do so for a reason. It's this. Uh, earlier on uh, today, I went on to uh, uh, the website of the International Federation of Competitive Eating. And um, uh, apparently this is divided um, in its uh, competitions into major leagues and minor leagues. And uh, on the major leagues uh, website uh, for this federation, it carried news that researchers have identified the best ways of eating the two parts of a chicken wing. Um, you may know that chicken wings form a major part of competitive eating uh, competitions. Um, and you know how on a chicken wing there's a, a, a round bit, that's called the drum apparently, and a flatter bit called the flat bit. And the two ways they've discovered of eating the drum and the flat bit are different. The researchers claim that given the numbers of chicken wings eaten in America each year, 116 million hours could be saved if they were eaten more efficiently. Well, we could go on poking fun at American excess. There's enough of it, whether we're talking poultry or the Winter Olympics or whatever it may be. Perhaps it's because Americans have a culture of aiming at wealth. But many of you will know my wife's American, and there's one thing I notice when I'm in the States. That people know what they want. Again and again, though, in this country, I find myself taking a funeral. And I ask, well, what did Billy like doing apart from work? Oh, not much, really. He or she liked a quiet life. Americans are brought up to be passionate about something. Sometimes it's the wrong thing, and that's where we can poke fun. But at least it's something. Years ago, we undertook here a, a course called Network, an originally American program designed to help us find our place of service in the church. And the hard thing was to get Brits to identify any sense of passion about anything whatsoever. 
So much so that actually, I guess it was a worldwide problem outside America, that when they revised Network and came to version 2, they moved passion from being the first thing you talked about to the last thing that was talked about. And because I'm talking mostly to Brits, what I want to do is to tease out God's passion here. Because I'm struck how much of it there is. And I'm struck that this is not just the character of God in some abstract way, but his deep abiding passions that we are to echo. And if that comes to Brits, that's going to be a hard call. Now, randomly, it seems to me that there are four sides to it. I could make it fewer, I could make it more, and I'm not going to pretend you can join it up with alliteration And you might well be able to set it up after me in other ways, because there's a lot here. But these are the things that strike me. And and listen up, because I reckon it's like John's Gospel. If you'll know John's Gospel, you'll know that there's this pattern that runs through it again and again. As Jesus to us, so us to others beyond. What we see of the character and passion of God here, as shared with Jesus is to be ours too, and then passed on beyond us. This is not the unique sin-bearing atonement event of Jesus. We get that later in Isaiah 53. This is the justice-seeking character passion of God that we can and should share in. Firstly then, of these four groups, four sides... There's something here about delight. Look at verse 1. That's where you see it most obviously. But God delights in this person who is chosen, verse 1, and called, verse 6. Yes, God is able so to love the world, as we say from John's Gospel. Yes, but he does so one by one. He calls one person to do this. He chooses one person to do this. He delights in one person as this is done. He watches what is being done and says, this pleases me and you please me in the doing of it. Uh, There's a mission coming to town in the summer called Who Cares?, I went to the launch meeting in the cathedral on Friday evening. There'll perhaps be more about it another time. But it's based on just randomly going into uh, the highways and the byways and to church life and wherever and just asking people where their hurt is. It's been done before on a small scale. And the presentation on Friday put up some of the answers that people give as to what hurts the most. It's astonishing how many of those hurts would not have happened in life if those involved had ever heard any human being say to them, I delight in you. You are my called. You are my chosen. Have we ever known a passion like that that delights in another? And it's a delight that is both in who you are and in what you do. The one who is delighted in is able, in the strength of the Father's pleasure, to undertake a task, 
uh, in this case, verses 6, second part of verse 6, and 7. I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Do you get the pattern? I call you, and I delight in you, but I don't just delight in you and say, oh, you're wonderful. Mm. I, I commission you. I give you something to do, and the two things belong together. The second group is something about might. This God is one who is creative. He is the creator, after all. And he has brought order to the tohu wavohu of the world. Verse 5. He created the heavens and stretched them out. He spread out the earth and all that comes out of it. And such is his creative power that he shares his very own life with what he has made. He gives it breath, verse 5. He gives breath to his people. And his spirit, verse 1, I'll put my spirit on him. This God promises to take hold of your hand in verse 6. But that's not a soppy, romantic kind of holding of the hand. The best illustration I can think of is probably that one of Moses. Not all of you will know the story. There was a time when uh, Moses was the leader of his people, and he was watching them down on the, on the battle plain, uh, fighting against a group of people called the Amalekites. And God had said to him, so long, Moses, as you're holding up your hands, your people will uh, win the victory. But if you start to get weary and let your hands drop, then they will start to lose. And so there's a, the, the story goes that um, uh, the, the battle starts to take uh, place and they're winning and then he gets tired and they're losing. Oh, and they're winning and they're losing. And eventually, uh, two uh, a brother and a friend, Aaron and her, come alongside and hold up his hands. And as his hands are held up by others, uh, younger people, his people down there know the victory. And that's what it means to uphold in the early part of the chapter. This is my servant whom I uphold, verse 1. It's the one, that's what it means when uh, it says to take hold of your hand, verse 6. This is the context of might and power and the achieving of a task. One who can say, as in verse 13, the Lord will march out like a mighty man, like a warrior he will stir up his zeal with a shout, he will raise the battle cry, he will triumph. There is might going on as a, as a passionate exercise of God's zeal to ensure that his people are on the winning side. Would you say of yourself that you are a tasky person or a people person? The assumption in Christian churches is that uh, often anyway, that because Jesus was nice to people, what matters is being nice to people, and being a people person is better. But God is a warrior with a battle to fight, and he will uphold the hand, the arms of those who are zealous in battle with him, supremely, of course, his own servant. Jesus is the people person who never lost sight of his task of announcing 
that God was becoming king. The third group, I suggest, is there in verses 2 to 3. Servant will not make a fuss. He will be tender with those who are bruised and faltering. You probably uh, know someone like that. But the servant will be tender as one who is himself, or who himself never falters or fails. He will be faithful, we're told in verse 3. He will not falter or be discouraged. Well, you may well know someone who's very able. But being able themselves, they aren't very good with the bruised and the frail and faltering. You probably know someone who is bruised and smoldering, inclined to give up. But they don't find it easy to rise above that and persevere in faithfulness. But the servant does. The servant can manage tender with others, while being tough on himself. And the fourth group uh, is to do with scale and scope. If you look at uh, chapter 41 and verse 14, this is what the people uh, will say, are saying about themselves. Their own self-description as God addresses them. Do not be afraid, O worm Jacob, O little Israel. And then what we find in chapter 42 is that the passion of God isn't just for little Israel, but for all the nations and even all the islands. There is nowhere about which he doesn't care. We ourselves probably know those who can manage passion for some one thing, but it only extends to those like them. It doesn't run far. Well, those are four sides to the passion of our God. He shares his character with his servant. Of course he does, because the servant has the Spirit of God poured out on him. Now, it's one shock to recognize that if that's the Spirit of God expressed in his passions, then those who come after and on whom the Spirit has come, you and me, are to share that character, that passion. If the Spirit of God tells us what the passion of God is, then the Spirit of God is not likely to have changed. Those passions and character are to be ours. But let me intensify that with a second shock. If it's the character of God to call and to choose, then it is the character of those who follow him to call and to choose. Think of Jesus walking along the, the, uh, the shore and saying, Oi, you two, follow me. As Jesus to us, so us to others. The character and passion of the servant, which are the character and passion of God, flow on to us and through us to others. So I want to go through those again as we finish. These things are not just true for Jesus, though they are. They are what you are to be and me. What you and I are called to be by way of character, as the servant character of Christ is formed in us. So then you pass on that calling. So often, uh, we, we, we take the kind of uh, the wrong turn when we sing a song like, uh, our worship is all about you, Jesus. Yes, it is. But the Jesus that it's all about is one who is constantly going out, 
so faithful worship will follow him in going out. Not in John's gospel, as Jesus to us, so us to Jesus. No, that is not the physics of Scripture. The physics of Scripture is as Jesus to us, so us to others. So, there should be something about us that chooses, calls, and delights in others. Do you know who you delight in, apart from anyone with whom you're in a family relationship? Is there anyone in your life who knows the joy of your delight in them because they're of the character of God? And if not, what are you going to do about it this week? There's something about might. Where are you called to exercise the creative power of God in setting all things to rights? And where are you to call others? It doesn't have to be wild and dramatic, though it's a conflict and a battle. But there's no grounds for us to say, well, that's what God does, it's not what I do. What is a family but a structure where things are to be put to rights and conflict is always round the corner? Uh, what about your workplace? What about your place of education? What about the team that you are part of? The model railway club with its seething jealousies and gossip? Set it to rights and call another to do the same in the character of God. Breathe the life and the spirit of God into situations that are tohu wavohu, and find others, followers of this servant, who will join you in the task. There's something about example, being tender to others, but utterly faithful beyond the factors that leave them discouraged. There's something about scale and scope, where have you kept small ambitions and allowed others to do the same? Where are you opening their eyes to see a horizon that has the islands in it, the furthest off? Now some, looking at the beginning of chapter 42, may say, that's not the point. This is all about Jesus and what he came to do. Yes, it is. But what does Jesus come for and die for if not that you and then others through you and me might know what it means to grow more like Jesus. Could we have a slide up, please, Andrew? And so I'm going to leave this up for our prayer time, just at the end of the sermon. Who knows that you delight in them? With whom are you sharing the might of God's life and spirit? With whom are you faithful beyond their frailty? Whose eyes are you lifting to see a wider horizon of where God is at work. Let's keep silence. I say keep silence, and of course, uh, uh, a number of you immediately close your eyes, but I want you to look at that slide. It's not an abstract question. I do kind of mean it. There are names to attach to that slide. What does God say to us in chapter 42, and what will we do about it this week?
Lord God, you know the uh, ways that our own lives are marked by tohu avohu. You know the ways that we have come to you time and again, longing for you to set to rights something in our lives or the lives of those we care for. Lift our eyes, we pray, to the distant islands, to know your justice as something that rolls onward because Jesus, your servant, has come, that does not come to an end with us and our longing, but rolls onward through us to others. And give us an obedience to be your servant, those on whom you have set your spirit in our generation. Amen.